Our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Hear God's word to us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I, I've been learning this slowly. Some of you know that I've been spending a lot of my spare time um, working on rehab projects for a new old home that we bought over here in Longfellow neighborhood downtown just a few months ago. And, you know, each project is kind of a window into the past, which is... And one side, extremely interesting, but simultaneously always very expensive. <laughs> so, so when you pull off a piece of trim, you find 60-year-old wallpaper. You pull up the floors, you find 100-year-old lead piping. It seems like everything you do, everything you work on, you find a bit of the story. We pulled out actually some cardboard, where there should have been windows, in our basement, and replace those with block windows. You know, it's the little things that make a house a home, right? Like windows. And, uh, and as we were pulling it out, we found some newspaper from the 1920s being used for insulation. It was fascinating. You know, you had some information about the Southern Pacific and the railroad and the new destinations that it was adding to its lines. You also found something about the glorious Yankees. And then it reminded me I was looking at an ancient artifact. Um, Oh, baseball fans. Anyway, so it's amazing to think about all of the different artisans who work together to create a home, a house that's lasted for almost 100 years. And I love to think about the artisans and how they'd hammered and then nailed the trim by hands. You know, as they put up the cast iron piping and then it converted to copper, they put in the knob and tube electrical and then converted it so that I don't die in my home. You think about the horsehair plaster or the blown glass. It was a different era. And all of these artisans working together, collaborating to create a piece of art that's outlasted them. And it tells a story of a bygone age. This is what architecture does. It tells a story. And one of those old vestiges that reminds me that my house is not from this era is a large front porch. Sometimes I'll be sitting on the swing on our front porch and you can look down the rows of front porches where people keep their recycling now. And I imagine what it was like in its heyday, you know, when people would come out in the cool of the day and they would catch up on the activities of the neighborhood and the city. But it's not like that anymore, is it? Instead, there's been a strategic move in where we entertain and where we connect from the front porch now to the back patio with tall fences or possibly even down into the basement of an indoor theater system. You see, our architecture, it tells a story. 
and it communicates what our culture values. Many have noticed this shift in architecture communicating a shift from a we culture to a me culture. This movement of collective approach to now individualism. And one sociologist, Robert Bella, in his book, Habits of the Heart, he elaborates on this a bit. I want you to listen to what he writes. He says, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. But our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. And for most of us in here who grew up in a Western framework, we've been given an individual lens focused on self-fulfillment, oftentimes at the expense of a community lens of responsibility. And you've got other sociologists like David Brooks and Robert Putnam who have been saying time and again that we have this excessive individual focus at the detriment of our collective community life and it's time that we listen, that we wake up and we pay attention. Well, if you're new here, there are times as a faith community we dive into the Psalms and we care for our souls. There are times in which we seek to equip our vocations and our callings and its various disciplines. But as thoughtful Christians, we wrestle through all various disciplines and allow the gospel to now speak into them. The same is true of our economics. And as we seek to now come and hear Jesus' command to love our neighbor, we found that it's never less than desiring to care for the one who's most proximate to us, but it's also much more. Two weeks ago, we discovered that loving our neighbor... Yes, means having compassion, but it also means expanding our capacity so that our compassion can be expressed in meaningful ways, whether in money or margin, to more people than we had in times past. Last week, we talked about how this capacity building is actually interwoven into our design. As image bearers of a generous God, we are called to increase our capacity and so express more generosity. Now this week, we're going to actually go beyond just one-on-one interactions. And we're going to discover that loving your neighbor means loving your neighborhood. Loving your neighbor means loving your neighborhood. How? Because we're so engulfed with individualism, that's where we normally jump. It's hard to think of the collective. And it's much more exercise for our mental and our cultural awareness. But here's how we're going to do it. The first way we seek to love our neighborhood is to know its story. You see, every neighborhood has a story that helps guide you in thoughtful ways of engagement. But what if there was one story that helps us understand every individual neighborhood story? What if there was one story that all of these neighborhood stories find resonance in? We find this story across the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, one overarching story that carries four components, what ought to be, what is, what can be, and what will be. And it's in these four chapters we're going to find four ways to thoughtfully move forward in loving our neighbor by loving our neighborhood, okay? So the first way... We're going to see that we love our neighborhood when we remember what our neighborhood ought to be. When we remember what our neighborhood ought to be. And and the first move here isn't doing then a community poll or a personal assessment. Those are good, but it's not the first step. 
The first step is actually looking back to the very first neighborhood as it's portrayed in the creation account within Scripture. Okay, so last week we spent some time in Genesis 1 unpacking how we've been made in God's image. Like the first sip of coffee that you have on a a cool fall morning, we hear echo time and time again, God saying, mmm, it is good, it is good. And then he even says, it's very good, right? You just let it tingle on your lips and you're like, finally, coffee. Well, when you get to chapter 2 in Genesis, we leave the broad brushstrokes and the heightened poetry of Genesis 1 and we enter into the narrative of Genesis 2 to discover humanity's place in creation design. It's here we come to the first neighborhood in the world, a place where its very name means delight and pleasure. This is how it ought to be. Maybe you're wondering, I've read Genesis 2, where on earth is this first neighborhood? Well, in English, the word neighborhood, when properly understood, includes both place and people. The two are intimately connected. And we find that the first place that God puts people is the Eden neighborhood, okay? Read with me in Genesis 2, verses 5 through 8. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So what was this first neighborhood like? Well, for starters, it was a place of contribution for everyone. A place of contribution. You see, in verses 5 through 6, there's an emphasis on what isn't there yet. And God, like a skilled city planner begins to assess what's there and what's missing and notices that there are still some core components of this neighborhood that are needed for it to flourish. And at this point, listen to this, there's no vegetation, no rain, no human beings. The emphasis is on what is lacking. And then the emphasis specifically on the human being is that there's no man to work the ground. There's still work to be done. And so God, he continues to bring order by creating Adam, planting a garden, and then designing the garden in such a way, I want you to check this, but this is a sovereign, all-powerful God, that human, human contribution is crucial to its flourishing. God brings the mist on the garden, but then there's still no man to work the ground. And he gave Adam a way to participate in this. In chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The garden would not flourish without human beings. God designed it that way. And so Adam's twofold job description was to work or to cultivate And then also to keep or to protect the Eden neighborhood. Now, this Hebrew word translated to work here is used to describe various kinds of work in the neighborhood throughout the Old Testament. It goes all the way from the priests offering sacrifices in the temple over to the builders who are building buildings. There's a lot of building going on. And in God's design, we see this an obliteration of our fabricated sacred and secular divide. Because in Adam's work, 
both work and worship come together in this seamless faithfulness and design that connects Sunday to Monday all the way to Saturday rest. But that's not all. It's not only a place of contribution. This neighborhood was delightful because it was also a place of collaboration, of collaboration. You know, something happens when we get to chapter 2, verse 18. We just heard this passage read. And after we hear the refrain, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Throughout chapter 1, you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, and it's like nails on a chalkboard. It is not good that the man should be alone. If you're reading those two chapters together, that should make you wake up and say, what is going on here? Because this is a sinless and pristine neighborhood, you know? But yet, not all was right. Not yet. I mean, Adam, he had the perfect neighborhood, no crime, the perfect job, right? Great climate. I mean, all the things you could really want. He had good education. He's walking with God in the garden. And yet, Adam can't live like this. He can't work like this. He's been given this monumental job. And honestly, he doesn't have all the skill set necessary to carry out this job description. How do we know? Because God then immediately says, I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. A helper for what should raise the question immediately. Now, I know for some that word helper can sound derogatory, but notice here in the text, its emphasis is on complementary work, not self-worth, okay? Complementary work, not self-worth. Where Adam is lacking in fulfilling his job description, God designs Eve with her unique contribution. And this is really at the heart of collaboration. An acknowledgement and celebration of various gifts coming together for the common good. An acknowledgement of various gifts coming together and collaborating for the common good. Now, last week, Mike talked about how Genesis 1 points out that being made in God's image means that we are to be fruitful and to multiply. And so often we think of that as making babies, right? Be fruitful. And that's the call from your grandmother or your grandfather. When are you going to have those grandchildren, right? And and this doesn't mean just making babies, but more robustly to make something of the world that God has entrusted to us. And whether it's procreativity or productivity, Marvin Gaye was right on both counts. It takes two, baby, right? takes two. So, so what, what God does here when he creates Eve is he actually establishes a fu- as fundamental to human flourishing the first collaborative economic system, okay? We get our English word economics from the Greek word oikonomia. And oikonomia, this gives us a window at the heart of economics. It carries the meaning of household stewardship, household stewardship. Like in every household budget, you've got limited income, and then you've got to figure out where that limited income, what resources, what bills that limited income is going to go towards. Now, as African-American economist Thomas Sowell says, economics is the allocation of scarce resources which have alternate purposes. And when you take this to a global scale, not only do the resources become more robust, But the allocation towards particular purposes becomes more complex. You get a little glimpse of this when you start to see how this shapes a neighborhood in the New Testament. Oikonomia is used to speak of pastors who are leading local churches. It's used to speak of the work being done in the home. It's used to speak of the work being done outside of the home, whether the business, businesses, the social sector, or the government. 
And it's the collaboration of these respective roles when people are living into their respective giftings that contributes to a glorious economic system. A system of complementary work adding value to God's world. Adding value to our shared home, the earth, you see. And in all this, we get a picture of an entrepreneurial God who sovereignly launches a global enterprise with risk and all the mystery that's entailed with that. Because he doesn't micromanage Adam and Eve, does he? He gives them a job description and alongside of that gives them the raw materials to do it and then says, get to work and get to work together. (laughs) You know, economics, to be sure, it's a complex discipline. But at its core, it's about a vast, interconnected, and interdependent web of collaboration where we express neighborly love by honoring, serving, adding value to others, whether they're literally next door or our global neighbor over in China. You know, in God's perfectly aligned economy, everyone was created and then called to a place of contribution. No one's left without a job. And collaboration was the name of the game. You didn't do your work alone, but you did it in collaboration with the other someone who was different, who had a different set of skills. And that's why the church must remember what our neighborhood ought to be. Because if we forget what it is and we go about seeking a solution to the brokenness that we find in our neighborhood and we don't know what our neighborhood ought to be, we're going to come up with misinformed solutions. Or maybe even worse, we're going to be satisfied with less than less than optimal flourishing in which God is calling us to. Because we all know our neighborhood's broken, right? You know, I remember when I was a butler in Chicago going to seminary, and I I was a butler for this older British businessman. And he would oftentimes, he would be up in the middle of the night pacing. And I would be up working on a paper or reading some systematic theology somewhere, you know, in my quarters. (laughs) And he'd be pacing. And one morning, I got up and I worked up enough nerve to ask him what on earth he's been doing. I said, you know, Mr. Perutz. What a, what a British name, right? Mr. Perutz. What, what were you doing last night? And he said, you know, I feel like my company's stuck. There's a problem. And I feel like if I can just nail down what the real problem is, and I know it's painful and it feels excruciating, but if I can nail down what the real problem is, the solution comes out naturally. My whole job is to figure out what's the real problem. And there is a real problem in our neighborhoods. Something's broken because my neighborhood doesn't look like the Edenic neighborhood we find here in Genesis 1 and 2. Not everybody has a place for contribution. Collaboration isn't seamless. And what we find in Genesis 3 is an explanation for why our neighborhood is the way it is. Tragedy strikes when Adam and Eve doubt God's character and so abandon God's commands. And this disintegration, it enters the world over. Procreativity becomes more painful. Productivity becomes more painful with thorns and thistles and sweat. We find this right there in Genesis 3. And then strife and struggle emerge instead of this joy-filled collaboration. Now with Adam and Eve and everyone thereafter combating for who has dominion 
and domination. You know, it ain't a beautiful day in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood anymore. And it's here we learn that we love our neighborhood when we pay attention to what our neighborhood is. Not just remember what our neighborhood ought to be, but pay attention to what our neighborhood is. And of course, there are times where we can still hear the echo, it is good, across our cityscape, when we still still see God's creation flourishing. But no matter how pedicured your lawn, no matter how great the amenities at your loft, every neighborhood is broken. We all simultaneously live in these broken neighborhoods with broken systems and broken homes inhabited by broken people who continue cycles of destruction that are manufactured and continue to be spurred on by demonic forces. What a world we live in. And the brokenness is so complex. And yet every single one of us in here has a part to play as to why it's broken. Every one of us. And I'm talking about the church collective as well as an institution. I remember a couple years ago, we hosted an event for Martin Luther King Jr. Day where Stan Archie, the pastor of our sister church, CFBC, came and spoke about the breakdown of collaboration between black churches and white churches, specifically around the 50s, 60s, and 70s when this huge sweep of white flight took place. And white folks with white churches and their economic means left the urban core. Leaving behind an empty tax base, broken schools. And when the African American churches were reaching out, Stan said, the white churches gave them the silent treatment. And what often happened is instead of leaning into the collaboration of churches because the hand was not extended... They leaned into the federal government, the only place they could find support because many of the local government structures continued to oppress minorities in our city. And the economy of the urban core, it tanked, and so did its schools, so did its tax base. And years of intentional disintegration in the city has brought destructions of generational impact towards minorities. It's knowing this on what is that we first have to come with a posture of repentance for the part we played in breaking God's good world and this city in particular. Okay, we may have played different parts in breaking this city, but we all have a part in which we've played in breaking it and living and the repercussions of those decisions. And later in this series, we have a whole sermon that's going to elevate and help us have a thoughtful conversation on how economics and justice coincide together. Okay, so I'm not going to say much more about it this week, except that the church must pay attention to what our neighborhood is and why it is the way it is. We didn't just plop into a history-less world, and we have to come with a posture of listening, learning, and repentance first. And for some of you here this morning, you can't ignore what is. This is what's going on in your backyard and inside your heart. You're saying, finally, yes, amen, right? (laughs) But there's more to the story yet. So let's keep walking through. You see, we also love our neighborhood when we work together for what our neighborhood can be, what our neighborhood can be. And don't hear me just talking about material improvements. That's important. But we need a holistic understanding of the neighborhood, its assets, and its deficits, okay? 
we need to take into consideration both the capacity and the corruption of every element of human existence, whether it be economically, whether it be socially, whether it be politically, systemically, physiologically, spiritually, of course, and how they're more intertwined than any of us want to really admit because of the actions that it calls us to partake in. Okay, but if it's that robust and that complex, why? Why should we care about broken neighborhoods instead of just escaping them? Or maybe even living in escape while we live within them. Why should we be proactive? In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson's The Message, I think, elaborates brilliantly when he says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> his, our problems became his problems when he stepped in. And in Jesus Christ, God came to us vulnerable. He came to us humble, unassuming. And of all places he could be born, he wasn't born in the 21st century with the amazing medical practices of care and cleanliness. Even at the dawn of the first century, he wasn't born into luxury and to royalty, but instead, when he breathed, he breathed his first breaths. And out of the overflow of his heart, he was born in an overflow room, being held in the arms of an unwed teenage mother. That's how God chose to enter the world. He then lived a life of obscurity for some 30 years as a craftsman carpenter, contributing to the economy of Nazareth and caring for his half-brothers and sisters, because he's the oldest, and also caring for his stepfather and his mother. And then the time came when he was no longer to come and live for the world, but also come and die for the world. And what is our call, if anything, but to follow Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection? The gospel is good news that saves us, but it is also good news that sanctifies us, that lays out the path in which we now follow Christ and live our lives. And so we follow Christ first, as he did in pursuing the common good, in collaboration with those that he's placed around us, but also simultaneously in our unique contribution in proclaiming the uncommon good, which is the gospel, and so answering our great commission. And one place Jesus elaborates on how these two are intimately interconnected is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, listen to what he teaches here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works... And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, immediately when we come to this text, we come back with our me culture. Come with the we culture. Individuals matter, to be sure. But the emphasis here is placed upon the corporate identity of the believers. In other words, the church gathered. One grain of salt, one little candle. It sounds really cute, but big deal. This song, this little light of mine, really should be, when we look at this text, this little light of ours. 
It's in the plural when you get to the Greek. And I was reminded of this in the Wall Street Journal this past week where the research of Harvard economist Raj Chetty, I, can, I think I'm saying his last name right, was featured. Raj, he's done some research on the shrinking middle class and, and the lack of economic mobility for so many in our nation. And his data points to two main contributors to the lack of economic flourishing for so many. And it was, was so thankful. We hadn't planned this dynamic uh, with Dean here, but here they are. Bad neighborhoods and bad schools. <laughs> bad neighborhoods and bad schools are two of the biggest obstacles to human flourishing and to economic um, adjustment and mobility. His data also points then to three main ways to turn the tide both in schools and in neighborhoods. Here they are. Wise government policies, two-parent families, not single-parent families, two-parent families, and neighborhood churches. Right there in the Wall Street Journal, he's calling the church out as to our role to economic flourishing in our neighborhoods. And so we have to push against just this, this me culture and think about the we culture as to how we are called together as the church and we are called to collaborate together as the people of God across borders. And we think about the metro and the church across the Kansas City metro, not even just Kansas City or Christ Communities downtown campus. Think about the collaboration across five campuses and then even collaboration with other churches. The first neighborhood we're called to when we follow Jesus is the church. That's the first neighbor, neighborhood. Isn't it Jesus who says, they'll know you're my disciples by how? The way in which you love one another. This is crucial. Even when you come to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, do good to all, pursue the common good, but especially the household of faith. Especially the household of faith. It's because we have the gospel and we are able to bring the can in a way that no one else can. We're able to bring the can in a way that no one else can as the church. Salt and light have these transforming properties, okay? You can't touch salt without getting salty. You can't get near light without darkness being expelled. This is a call to transformation and one of the primary assets that both economists, Jesus, and the biblical storyline communicate for neighborhood flourishing is the local church doing dynamic work in its broader neighborhood for its broader neighborhood. No way around it. Now, this isn't meant to put us on a pedestal, but it's meant to put us to work. Because <laughs> the one response is to say, well, look at us. That's not the point. The point is to now, here's your marching orders. Get on with it. Privilege comes with responsibility. May we never forget that. We've been given the good news and it should transform every aspect of who we are. So let's commit to work together for, for what our neighborhood can be. Now, that seems really abstract and we're gonna tease that out over the next few weeks. But here's one nugget that we're gonna continue to unpack. One possibility comes from a think tank out of Oxford University and the Mars Corporation that, that's been calling businesses to embrace a threefold bottom line instead of just the one. You know, if this neighborhood, neighborhood will ever be what it can be, instead, together we need to embrace an economics of mutuality, where the bottom line of all individual work and global corporations, wherever you're situated, whether you're a leader 
or an employee at your business, the threefold bottom line is not only profit, while that's still important for expanding capacity and flourishing, but also people and the planet. If we're to pursue the common good and so build actually the plausibility of the gospel, that it's not just something that impacts my heart and the privacy of my home, but transforms the landscape of our neighborhoods, then we have to come with a different calculus on how we assess success as organizations in this unique position that God has placed you on mission. Yeah, this world's broken, but because of what God has done in Christ, we're still able to now selflessly and more robustly follow God's creation desire of working together for the common good through good work, creativity, job creation, creation care, client care, and proclamation. May we never forget. Well, I want to show a short video of an example of a couple folks in our congregation who are doing exactly this right here in our crossroads downtown to help make what is abstract more tangible. So let's watch together. Uh, what do I do with most of my day? We, uh, I own a, a creative agency. Um, we, we get the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs and people that are starting new venture ideas, uh, consult with them and collaborate with them, and then work with a team of designers and developers to uh, build web apps, iPhone apps, and, and then try to launch new businesses. We wear multiple hats, and so from an owner's perspective, uh, George and I get to work collaboratively on where we're going, where we're going to take this thing. Uh, my name is George Brooks. I've been coming to Christ Community for just shy of 10 years now. My name is Dan Linhart, and my family and I have been coming to Christ Community for just a little over 10 years. As we work together in a collaborative environment, we're going to trust each other to not only own up to the accountability you have in whatever project you're working on, but we're going to trust each other's specialty as well. There's something amazing to come to our office, and that's why we bring our clients there a lot, is to see programmers, designers, product strategists, business people, project managers all in one room. Um, you come up with a, a wonderful thing, and it's a great solution to that can solve a great problem. So I, I like to use the odd is can will, the kind of four-part gospel. If this was the perfect business, you know, the, um, the ought of the business, if this was the perfect business, what would it look like? And the reality is, is there's an is. Um, there's constraints, whether it's budget or time. A bunch of different factors are going to play into the success of whether or not that business works. And then the can is really, for me in our space, is what can this be? Um, within those constraints, we can do something great, but the best way to do it is to work as close to that ought as we could. And that ought would be really everyone with their different disciplines and their different strengths and gifts coming together for a great result. Work truly is, it's, it's a gift that we've been given to serve others. Um, and I, I love um, in the Old Testament when, when um, God says that I'm blessing you so that uh, you can be a blessing. That's kind of something that's stuck with me. A couple years ago, we worked with a, an entrepreneur um, that had an idea, and he was a brilliant man, and him and his co-founder were really smart guys, and we were there to really help provide the, the tool, the technology platform that was going to help their company grow. Um, and again, in entrepreneurship, there's always that opportunity that's just not going to work. When it does work, 
when a new company is formed that is solving a problem that actually does exist in the world, that is, it's, it's like magic. We were able to kind of help them set up the pedestal to grow their business. And the last time we met up with them, this is about six months ago or so, they had 85 employees, I think, at that particular location. And they had gone global. Well, those are jobs. Those are people now have jobs because of the thing that we helped start. And, and oh, by the way, other businesses are being formed by the money that they're lending. And, and just that's when it gets really exciting is that there was a problem to be solved. We were able to be a part of the journey to help solve it. I have a gift. I have a contribution, but it's not the full thing. I, I need to come here and give it to others. And if they're doing the same, that's where truly where we've seen and the clients we worked with and the products we've built, that's truly where the greatness comes from. So as we work together for what ought to be, paying attention to what is and working together collaboratively as to what can be, we love our neighborhood when we also long for what our neighborhood will be. Long for what our neighborhood will be. You see, the goal in all of this, I heard this from Brian Fickert, a thoughtful economist and one who's written a book called When Helping Hurts. He said, the goal isn't to make this neighborhood look like that neighborhood over here. The goal is to make every neighborhood, wherever God has placed you, look more like the New Jerusalem. More like the New Jerusalem. When you start in Genesis 1, you find a garden with raw materials and a job description. But when you get to the end of the story in Revelation 21, you find a diverse and complex city where collaboration brings a creative economy of contribution. It's this beautiful picture of development, where what ought to be will be forever. And while Jesus hasn't abandoned our neighborhood, he sent the Holy Spirit to go before us, to work in us, to work through us, and to work through others. We also, we don't come with cynicism overwhelmed with what is. We don't come with this outrage and naive optimism as that we're going to solve all solutions, but we step in with a hopeful realism, knowing that we can bring some change But the ultimate change comes when Christ himself returns and makes all wrongs right. What that does is it delivers us from a savior complex. We are not the saviors of our neighborhood. Only Jesus is. And it brings a better humility and once again a posture of repentance and collaboration. Until then, we love our neighbors by loving our neighborhoods. Seeing our neighborhood through one story that makes sense of every story. Being who we can be, which is salt and light. And helping our neighborhood be what it can be because of Jesus. And then maybe, just maybe, our neighborhood's children's children, when they inherit this neighborhood from us, it'll be like inheriting this old house. That'll speak of the story of collaboration. And it'll actually equip them to better hand off the neighborhood to their children and their children's children. It becomes a perspective, not not of this me culture, but a generational we culture that's other-centered for dynamic impact powered by the story of the gospel. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I'm thankful that it touches every aspect of our lives. That you're not just someone that comes to make us feel good, but you've come to transform the world. The world. 
and to banish darkness wherever it's found, to bring light and flourishing wherever it's not. God, may you give us wisdom. I know some of these concepts seem quite robust. We can lean into the academic rather than the actionable. But God, may you continue to tease these out over the next few weeks as we take these core concepts and continue to apply them as these building blocks to bring about and be engaged in thoughtfully building a better economic reality in our city. All this for your glory, we pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.